Amen. Deuteronomy chapter 32 is where I'd like to go with you this morning. Let me add one thing before I leave the subject of being born of water and of the Spirit as well. Um, There is a Bible lesson taught by the Lord Jesus himself in Mark chapter 4, and he's typing his lesson uh, like in like shadows type and shadows to a farmer. I heard someone on the radio this week say one of the one of the greatest and most missing industries in the United States of America is farming. It's being taken, stolen, removed, mis- or uh, replaced. But Jesus likens it to sowing seeds. And he says when seeds, good seeds are sown, immediately there's a reaction. There's a response. I hope you're listening to me. The devil sees when God plants a seed. And he comes immediately to try to either dig the seed up, drown the seed in the world, grow junk up around the seed so that it can't prosper. So it's no it's no coincidence that when you make a move to get water baptized or you receive the precious gift of the Holy Ghost, it's not an accident that junk starts happening in your life. It is designed that way by the kingdom of darkness. You just you just trooper through that. God will only let you deal with so much and then he'll get you over the hump or through that through that situation. I'm reading thank you for standing from the book of remembrance, the fifth book of the Old Testament, Deuteronomy. And just one verse of scripture, Deuteronomy 32 and 10, praise the Lord. He found him in a desert land and in the waste howling wilderness. He led him about, he instructed him, and he kept him, the Bible said, as the apple of his eye. He kept him as the apple of his eye. And that's what I want to talk about today, the apple of his eye. Bless your good name, God of heaven. We're thankful for your mercy and loving kindness for every soul in the house, every person, man, woman, young person or elder. Strengthen our hands. Feed our soul today. Encourage our life. We'll give you all the praise for it, God. In the name of Jesus, the apple of his eye, you may be seated. The phrase only appears four times in all of the Bible. The apple of his eye. I read that this phrase comes from the Hebrew expression, the little man in the eye. And I'm quoting, it refers to that tiny reflection of yourself that you can see in someone else's pupil when close enough to them. To be the apple of someone's eye means that you are being gazed upon and watched very closely by that person, unquote. So when David asked God in Psalm 17, 8, to keep me as the apple of your eye, David was asking God, please keep a close eye on me. Anybody ever think like this? I have many times. Just keep that split screen up there for a moment. That sometimes I am my own worst enemy. And sometimes I pray, God, help me deal with me. Because sometimes 
Well, yeah, you know, the flesh. David is saying, would you watch out for me? Would you guard me with the apple as the apple of your eye? In the common English Bible, he said, watch me with the very pupil of your eye and hide me in the protection of your wings. That's a pretty intimate prayer, isn't it, right there? All right, so let's let just hold that on to that for a moment. Anybody here have, uh, as, as your favorite place to read in the Bible, anybody love more than any other place to go to Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, the Gospels? Anybody? Let me see your hand if you would. That's your favorite place to read, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. I wonder how many in the house would say, yep, I've read it more than a dozen times. I've read it more than 50 times. They are certainly... Certainly powerful, profound, very good places to sink your teeth into the meat of the Word of God. But the Gospels are the Gospels for a reason. The church began to get advice after the birth of the Gospels in the book of Acts. Those Gospels are great. They are something you should regularly feast on. But don't set your life up there to stay there. They are good as they are mixed with the epistles, Romans to Jude, and of course the Old Testament. Read them. Read them again and again and again and again. But to you that said, I love the Gospels more than any other place, I want to ask you something to consider. What is the most outstanding characteristic, the most outstanding trait of the Lord Jesus Christ that you see depicted in those Gospels? If I ask you, what's the most outstanding thing that jumps off the page and grabs you repeatedly, what would you say? I'm not talking about what we see Jesus like in Revelation or Ezekiel or Daniel, but when you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, what is it about Jesus that jumps off the page and speaks to you about his character? Just hold on to your response for a moment, please. What characteristic of his recorded earthly action, recorded earthly actions stand out to you? Is it the way he commanded a crowd? John 7, 46, the writer said, never seen a man speak like that man. Could it be the way that he had power to heal the sick? Matthew 8, 17, which was a quote from the golden prophet Isaiah, he took our infirmities and he bare our sicknesses. Is it the way that he seemed to possess knowledge of all things? John 7, 15, they questioned him, how does he know the law or the letters, King James, having never learned? What stands out to you? Is it, was it his wisdom to stump the learned? Luke 2.46, at 12 years of age, they found him in the temple, listening to the doctors of the law and asking them questions. And then there's the one that almost everybody would say, well, of course, what stands out to me more than anything was the love of God manifest in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I agree with you 100%, but if I were to ask you personally, give me a biblical example. Give me a recorded biblical 
gospel example of his love. It's become so cliche to just say, oh, I appreciate the love of God. Give me a recorded example. Tell me in the Bible what, when you look at it, you say, oh, that melts my heart, how his love is on demonstration right there. It's become so commonplace. We just repeat like, you know, canaries what we've heard. Oh, the love of God just melts my soul. And I agree with you. I'm not making fun of that. But I'm talking about something that you see every time you open Matthew again, Mark again, Luke again, John again, and you go, oh, there it is right there. It stirs the heartstrings of my soul every time I read that particular passage. The love of God. Well, the one thing I want to discuss today with you, I guess it falls under the category of all of the above, but in a little bit different sense. No matter what gospel feeds you more than anything, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, and by the way, if you're the type of analytical person that says, read one, you've read one, you've read them all, not true. Not true. The first three are called synoptic, meaning if Brother Michael Berge was standing up here, Brother Manny was standing up here, and I was standing up here, and something went on back there, something crazy and out of the ordinary went on, and we witnessed it from afar, and then Brother Michael got a piece of paper and wrote out what he saw, Brother Manny got a piece of paper and wrote what he saw, and then I did the same. Everybody would see the same event, but we'd have a little different take on it. That's the synoptic idea, the seeing eye. So when you tell me I've read Matthew, I don't need to read the rest. You are not, you are not seeing it the right way. But no matter what gospel I read, I see this one characteristic on constant display. It doesn't matter if he's turning the water to wine, John 2. If he's raising Lazarus from the dead and out of that tomb, I see this characteristic of the Lord Jesus Christ constantly being displayed. The one thing that jumps off the pages and, and helps me is that I see this in every gospel. It's simple, but I want you to think about it. This is what I see. Jesus valued everybody. He valued everybody. I'm telling you, that's tough to do. That's tough to do when you have people on your job, in your family, um, in your circle of friends. They're always the one contrarian in the circle. If everybody's going up, he wants to go down. It's difficult to value everybody as a human. But look in your Gospels. Jesus valued everyone. Romans 2.11 said, With God there is no respect of persons. Brother Carlos, you know what that means in our vocabulary? He doesn't see the rich man as better than the poor man. The smart man is greater than the dumb man. The beautiful man better than he does the ugly man. 
It is true in your Gospels. You will see that Jesus valued the synagogue. He valued his hometown. He valued his family history. He valued the importance of the nation of Israel. But above everything I see in the gospel, I see that everywhere he went, on demonstration was his valuation process of people. Rich men, he valued. Poor men, he valued. You say he hated rich men. You again have probably just read Matthew. Nicodemus was a wealthy man. A rich man. Read John 3. And Jesus laid it all out for that man because he loved him. He loved rich men, poor men. He loved religious men. He loved sinners. He loved insane men. He'd do good here, wouldn't he? Hallelujah. Come on. Don't look tight on me. He loved women that had soiled reputations. He valued hurting people, happy people, leaders, followers, people that were confused, people that were backslidden. He valued people with visions and dreams. He valued people who didn't know anything about life. Jesus valued everybody. It's no wonder, Sister Plato, in John 10, 11, he's called the good shepherd. In 1 Peter 5, 4, he's called the chief shepherd. In 1 Peter 2, 25, he's called the shepherd and the bishop of our soul. In Hebrews 13, 20, he's called the great shepherd. And in Psalm 23, 1, he's called My shepherd, he valued everyone. I'm just going to tell you something you already know. I haven't, I am not there yet. <laughs> I'm a long ways from there. Life is a learning process, isn't it? But everywhere you see the stories unfold in your gospels, you notice Jesus trying to connect to people. The one thing Jesus would not do was be pressured into someone else's opinion of how he needed to act. I love that. And everywhere, Brother Marshall, he went, he loved and cared and he tried to make connections with people. He told Zacchaeus in Luke 19, verse 5, Get out of that tree, boy! I'm coming to your house today! Turn the TV off when I left this morning. Jesus is come. Jesus is coming over. Did I put those magazines away? Uh oh. In Luke four thirty-eight and thirty-nine, he went and healed Peter's mother-in-law. He didn't just say, "Here I am at church. You want me? Come get me." He tried to connect to people, Brother Anthony. He valued everybody, even people you and I don't value. And because of his love and value placed upon 
people. He tried to make that connection. Oh, that God would help us make a greater connection to him. You know why people get bored in church? People get bored with their pastor. People get bored with life. Their connection's drying up. You got you to keep your connection alive. But if he or she feels devalued, how do you expect them to be? Jesus valued and tried to make connection. There was only one type of person throughout all of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that took great exception to Jesus trying to connect to people he valued. There was only one group of people that were bothered by it. Everywhere he preached, crowds came. Anybody heard he wants more of Jesus? If he is my only hope, then give me all I can get, and he is my only hope. Crowds gathered, and because of their green-eyed jealousy, the only people that, that took exception to the value he placed upon everybody was the religious people. Say it in the mic. The ones that hated him for what he stood for more than anybody was religious people. He exposed their hypocrisy. He just came right down the middle of the road and didn't apologize. One of my favorite chapters in the Gospels, you don't have to turn there, no efforts needed. I'll just give it for people that want to check it later for memory's sake. But in Matthew 23, Jesus is just cutting it down the middle. And the Pharisees are all analyzing everything he says. Well, well, well. And he just comes across, he says, you serpents. Now, you got to be careful, Jesus. They might not come back. He says, you generation of vipers. He says, how can you escape the damnation of hell? Come on now, Jesus. We want city council to invite us back. And religious people, they were up in arms. He broke their molds, shattered their expectations. Luke 5, verse 30, the religious folk were so upset that he dined. How dare he dine with publicans and sinners? I want to say this to help, if, I, if, it, if it can. I mean it to be helpful. We should never get so churchified that we can't have dinner with people that don't know the Lord as you do. We Listen, I love church more than anybody, all right? I, I, I think I do anyway. It's how I feel about it. I love the house of God like most, like all of you do. But we should never get so hung up on things that we don't have a place in our life to commune with people that need God like you have. 
can you, this is what it says they were doing. They're murmuring. Hey, Brother Corey, can you believe the nerve of that man? He's over there with publicans. That's tax collectors. People after this, after your wallet. <laughs> and with sinner people. That's what he says. They were murmuring. Can you believe this? This guy come to establish a kingdom like no other, and he's eating pizza over here with you know who? In fact, your gospels tell us that Jesus ate with sinners, tax collectors, and are you ready? Prostitutes. Not me, Lord, no way. Come on. Peter said, Not a chance. There ain't no way you're washing my feet. Jesus said, I got, I got a lesson for you, Peter. If this don't happen, that's in your Gospels. Well, I can kind of understand. Sometimes I'm ashamed to admit it, but I can kind of understand that their self-righteous indignation was riled up because they didn't expect this. Can you tell me, possibly even imagine, how the 99 sheep felt? The 99 faithful sheep, when in Luke 15, 4, he leaves them. Hey, that prostitute over there. Hey, that addict over there, that alcoholic down there. That fornicator, that adulterer. That person. That thief, that liar. Peter, ain't no way. Touching my hands, you aren't. And he says, I'll be right back. And he goes hunting for the one lost sheep. Even a man with the profound depth and walk with God as Nathaniel. In, in John 1.46, he, he just, my, my explanation, my commentary, just kind of scratches his head and says, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? So what stands out to you? In Acts chapter 1 and verse 6, Acts chapter 1 verse 6, the Jews thought that when Messiah returned, he was going to set up some kind of an extension of David's kingdom. So here comes this anti-everything I thought it would be. In fact, Luke wrote in Acts 15, 16, way down the road, he mentions the tabernacle of David, which never existed, He didn't have a tabernacle, but he's referencing a, a, an era, an era of de, de, a deposed dynasty. It's Isaiah 15 and Amos 9 he's talking about. This era where this dynasty of David took on spiritual heirs about it, and they thought Messiah was going to restore again the kingdom to Israel. David's kingdom. The Jew believed this. All of these men that took exception. They believed that Messiah was going to be one, a male descendant of David. Check. 
Two, he had human birth with human parents. Check, check. He was going to be a perfect teacher of the law of God. Check, check, check. Fourth, they thought he would rebuild the temple. Mm. He said, tear this thing down and I'll rebuild it in three days. And they go, what are you talking about? And of course, the gospel writer said he spoke to them of the temple of his body. And fifthly, and this is, the, this is the, the bright red nose on the clown here. The Jew thought that he was going to change the political landscape. That Israel would become a, a world power again. All because he was going to set up and reestablish David's dominion. So here he comes. Sorry, Michelangelo. Didn't have a ponytail. No personal Shot intended. Jews believed in men. Read your, your book, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. It was a shame, Paul said, for a man to have long hair. Oh, is this some of your wisdom? Should I preach it out here or what? I'm writing your Bible. Isn't it crazy how people go, well, you're on a tangent today, aren't you? I'm writing the Bible. Paul said, he appeared to me on the road. If Jesus was what Michelangelo said he was, Paul would have never had the nerve to write, it's a shame for a man. You want to know what the interpretation of long hair is? Don't talk to me after church. Talk to Brother Quayle. <laughs> well, what's long? Don't, I'm... That's the thing, that they wanted him to change the political landscape. They thought when he came, all of a sudden they were going to turn into the big brother. All of a sudden they were going to carry the clout in every religious circle. So just, again, put that up by the previous and let me just change directions slightly. According to Matthew 4.19, Jesus, I believe, wants you and I to make the same effort, the same connection. He wants you and I to value, just like he did, every single person. He said, I'm making you fishers. He didn't say of rich men, educated men, pretty men, good men. Fishers of men. That's why Mark 16, 15 said, he said, go preach to every creature. That's why Matthew 28, 19 said, teach all nations. He valued everybody. Heaven forbid that we walk by anyone. Because the one behind them is prettier. I'm talking to my leadership right now. Heaven forbid that we walk by anybody because the one around them is handsomer. There's bad English. 
more handsome, more beautiful. When we value people, it's expected of you and I to make an effort to connect to them. I wonder why Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 9.22 that he was made all things to all men. Connections. Connections. You know, when you start a new job, it's always kind of a nervous little time frame there. You're always the one you think everybody's looking at you. Who are you? But after a while, someone, hopefully, on the job comes up and says, hey, my name's... And they kind of break the ice and make you feel a little more welcome. When we value people, we try to make connections. Again, in case you didn't hear me say it earlier, it's tough for humans to value everybody. It's just some people that have opposite ambitions than you and I. Some people I get along with. Easy. Because we have a lot of similarities. Other people, we have to work at things, don't we? I can get with pastors and just talk. And for, most, for the most part, most of them, they're not political. I can get with them and just have a lot of fun. If you're an electrician, I'm sure you can, you've got your circle of friends, plumbers, pipe fitters, welders. You talk the same language. You understand the same dilemmas about the job. Jesus valued, and because of that, he tried to connect. And sometimes it's difficult to connect to certain people. That's the beauty of the church, the body of Christ. Yeah. Is Brother Colin, I cannot connect. Most, I'm, I'm pretty sure I can't connect to the people you can connect with. You bring people from work, you've already got an inroads with them. But one thing that a church should be is as friendly as it thinks it is. And he always connected with people before he tried to change them or before he did change them. Meaning, meaning the Lord in your Gospels. Mark 16, 20, the Bible said he confirmed the word with signs following. Why do we want people to be perfect after they've been to church twice? Why? If God could roll back the stars... And unzip eternity and show us. Some of us have been years in the church. And it's still difficult to approach. Because I just, I'm just that, sometimes I'm that way. And I, I'm not boasting and that's not false humility. I, I've got a dark side like anybody else. But he confirmed the word with signs following. God is working. He values and he connects, and he gives power to change. So when, so when people come into the church, and they're not as polished as somebody else, it doesn't mean that they're where they're supposed to be. But it does mean, as far as you and I and how we handle babes, we should be so careful. We should be so careful. 
I'm going to expose my 63-year-old bad ideas and opinions here. But I'm bothered when I see you young guys doing this to babies. That bothers me. Now, you're laughing, but it, don't, it, don't, it bothers me. One accident. Oh, don't be so net. One accident. You're talking about a little precious baby. One slip of the hand. One. And I've seen it. I went to the emergency room. And seen dislocated shoulders on little tykes. Broken ankles on little tykes. No, no. See, I told you you wouldn't like that. No, we're not going to put them in a glass case. And, and I've, just, I've just told you that bothers me. Look, we all did it. My dad did that. One of those ER visits was my dad doing that to my son. So I'm not, I'm not after anybody. Don't take it personal. But take it personal. So he connects, he confirms with power, and I ask you this today, how is it possible, how is it possible to proclaim or to claim to be filled with the baptism of the Holy Ghost, and we can walk right by lost people every time we come to church, and all we think about is the roast in the oven, the sale at Fred Meyer's, ah, that's not my job to pray at the altar, how, how is that Jesus valued people. That's what jumps off the pages to me. He valued every human being. And they didn't like it because he wasn't what they thought he was going to be. He exposed their hypocrisies, and they were green-eyed, double-shell jealous. When they saw him have the ability to change, and their formalities could not. Formalities never changed anybody. I don't think anything can change a human being if truth isn't present. Religion can't change you. Formalism can't change me. Truth. According to one writer, you, you might want to take this down, although I texted this to a handful of you yesterday or today. I forget when it was. According to one writer, and it's worth quoting, People can genuinely change when, number one, they hurt enough that they have to. People can genuinely change, too, when they see enough that they are inspired to. Number three, they can change when they learn enough that they really want to. But number four, this is the icing on the cake. People can really change when they receive enough that they are able to. So you know what that's telling me, Brother Marshall? If I, can't, if I haven't found satisfaction and change yet, I need more of him. I need to receive more of the Lord in my life. More of Jesus means more victory. I'm just going to repeat those because I'm, I'm, I'm wrapping this up. Number one, people can really change when they hurt enough. They hurt enough that they have to. Ever know any, ever have, probably a silly question, someone in your life, your family, your circle of friends that aren't addicted to something? 
and you really are able to have heart-to-hearts with them. And I, I, if I've been told this once, I've been told 25 times, I really want to stop, but I don't know how. When they hurt enough that they have to, when they see enough they're inspired to, when they learn enough that they want to, and when they receive enough that they're able to. Maybe a handshake gives them a little bit more courage. Maybe a hug of the neck, if that's appropriate, gives them a little more desire. Want to know what I see when I open the Gospels? You didn't ask, but I'm going to tell you anyway. Here's what I see when I open the Gospels. Every time without fail. I see that in Song of Solomon 7.10, his desire is toward me. He actually channels his desire your way. I see in Job 23.6 that he doesn't have it in his heart to plead against me, to argue against me. But he has it in his heart to put strength in me. And every time I read the Gospels, this is what I see. That to him you were worth dying for. And let me deal with another myth about that, may I? So many people that have a little bit of religion in their life, they think, well, he died as God. He went down there, you know, in, uh, in immaculate flesh, and he didn't feel anything. He just, you know, pain be gone. That is so juvenile. He suffered for our sake. He felt every agonizing pain. He shed blood in a painful way, just like you and I would had we been hanging on the cross. But I see this above everything in the Gospels every time I read. That you, you are the apple of his eye. And every, every time I look in the Gospels, see my reflection there. Not because I've deserved anything. I see your reflection, Brother Corey. I see your reflection, Brother Larry. I see your reflection because you are the apple of his eye. You're right there in the, in the centermost place of his vision. See, I feel all alone when I'm at work. That's just your feelings. You need to quote scripture and arise above your feelings. He said, I will never leave you out of your gospel, and I'll never forsake you. You may feel alone. You may feel abandoned. But he said, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. You may forget about me, but I am the apple of his eye. I may forget about you, but you are the apple of his eye. Did anybody see that in your gospel? Do you see that? That he values everybody. It's hard for me to value argumentative people. Hard for me to value deceptive people, sneaky people. But maybe you look at me like that. Who knows? But Jesus saw deep beyond the surface. And he saw value in every human being. Thank you, Jesus, for your mercy today. 
Thank you for your loving kindness. Thank you for caring, God, more deeply than we can even explain. Thank you for being compassionate more deeply than we can possibly convey. Thank you, Lord, for seeing beyond my pride, beyond my excuses, beyond my reasons, and valuing me. Thank you that I can see that reflection in my eye. Thank you that I can see that hope in your eye, Lord. Thank you, Lord, that these people today, precious so. He said, don't send them away fasting lest they faint by the way. He cares. He cares. He cares. Someone told me one night when I was baptizing them, Sister Gala whispered in my ear right before I dunked this person. The person said, you know my problem, Pastor Herring, I don't fit in anywhere. And my heart just broke, Brother Joe, because I know this person wasn't acting. But you do fit in the apple as the apple of his eye. He does care. Thank you, Lord. New people, new people, new people. In your own way, would you just, would you just kind of communicate to God right now? Listen, I'm not just making sermons here. I'm telling you, he, he sees you with great value. He looks at you with great value. Is there any way from the bottom of your own heart you could just say, thank you, Jesus? I don't deserve it, but thank you, Jesus. I've never earned it, but thank you, Jesus. I'm wretched, but thank you, Lord. I keep falling, but thank you, Jesus. I keep stumbling, but thank you, Jesus. I keep promising and breaking, promising and breaking. But thank you, Jesus. Oh, God. He values you today, brother. He values you today, sister. He values you, visitor in the back. He values you, visitor in the front. That's what I see. You're worth something to him. You're worth something to Jesus. You're worth something to Jesus.